So the club owner just says, let me talk to you for a second. He pulls me into the kitchen. He said, listen, you need to convince the man that what you're saying is absolutely true, or I will shoot you dead and I will burn down this club with your body in it. Welcome to Neurons to Nirvana, a platform for creative forces that embrace the unconventional and the quest for artistry, humanity, innovation, health, and healing of the mind and soul. Join me, Tom Hartridge, on a journey celebrating experiences unbound by physical borders or traditional norms. From inside the mind to the far reaches of the universe, this is Neurons to Nirvana. In a minute, you'll get a chance to hear the chronicles of Ivan Bodley, also known as Funk Boy, who has played bass to more than 50 inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and is an inductee into the New York Blues Hall of Fame himself. Ivan has recently published his memoir, Am I Famous Yet? Memoir of a Working Class Musician. Before we get into his hilarious and heartbreaking stories of his search for fame, financial stability, and simple peace of mind, I want to express some gratitude to all of the listeners. Thanks to you, Neurons to Nirvana has achieved over 20,000 downloads. Thank you so much. And for those of you who are just now listening for the first time, please visit my website, neuronstonirvana.com, find my social media sites, and like and subscribe to my YouTube channel, Instagram posts, or Twitter feed to keep up to date with upcoming episodes. I'm hoping to build a community of listeners who can help shape future conversations. Now back to Ivan. I enjoyed reading his memoir, and there are some fun stories about bootlegging Bo Diddley's live performance, performing with Sting, and how Ivan grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and now calls New York City home. In the background, you hear a little of the funky Crab Walk, which is a smoking new single on Color Red Music that showcases Ivan's bass line, music directing, and master of the art of remote collaboration. Let's take it back to the beginning with funk boy Ivan Bogler. Ivan, how are you today? Man... I'm good. It's cold in New York, but I'm good. It's a good day. What's the temperature up there? Oh, it's a heat wave today. I think we got up to about 30. I think we got up to freezing today. So we had uh, <laughs> a foot of snow on the ground in two days in the teens and 20s. And now we're like up to freezing. It's like it's a good day. Yeah. As uh, you know, I live in Austin, Texas. and I'm originally from Savannah. I can't stand cold weather. And the thing about New York is you guys get the humidity in the summer and yeah. then the brutal winter absolutely yeah yeah the worst of both worlds love it <laughs> but i can't thank you enough for joining me today and i'm excited to talk to you about oh, man. thanks so much for having me i really appreciate it your career i'm a huge music fan a, a lot of the musicians that you have crossed paths with collaborated with i'm fans of so you know we'll just sort of riff and I've read a, most of your book. The name of your book is. You want to tell the listeners, or <laughs> you like me to do it? <laughs> I, I can do it. I don't. I'm not. I'm not shy. It's called "Am I Famous Yet?" Memoir of a Working Class Rock Star. And the premise is 
fairly self-explanatory, but how did you come up with the title? Well, it, it is it is memoir based, you know, but it's not a traditionally formatted memoir, you know, like I, I've talked to some friends of mine and it's like sort of about writing and books and especially music memoirs, you know, like when you read the typical sort of music memoir, it gets good on page 400. Like that's the stuff you wanted to hear about. It's like when the pan, when the band finally became famous and they're doing the interesting stuff, like the rest of the time, like, then I went to, I was born here and then I went to elementary <laughs> school there and I went to high school there and you're like, oh, okay, right. great. Yeah. Super. <laughs> Doesn't get good to like page 400. So I, I did mine deliberately sort of out of sequence. You know, it's yes. not a linear through through line. Uh, I, I don't think I jumped around too much. I mean, you can tell me as a, as a reader where you think it jumps around too much or it's not self-explanatory in that way. But I, I started right out of the gate to try to tell some of the more interesting sort of anecdotes and then would sort of intersperse some of the, the backstory that kind of got me to where I am, uh, wherever that is. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, you're in the present. That's where you are. That's Talk where I am, for sure, for sure. Um, so I got a kick out of it. You're originally from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I'm from Savannah. So we're both from the South. Born and raised. Salute. Yeah. It's a great town. Uh, I actually have a couple friends that live there, so I've spent a little bit of time. I like Chattanooga. And then I got a kick out of what you said uh, and can relate when you were talking about when you went to Baylor. Oh, yeah. And you were there when it was an all male school. So sure. my parents, my, my parents, uh, they suggested, quote unquote, that I should go to boarding school. And the one that I wanted to go to was co-ed. But instead, they sent me to an all male boarding school. Yes, sir. And the foothills of uh, great school made a lot of friends. But uh, I can't think of the worst situation for me. <laughs> It doesn't seem like an intuitive idea. I know it certainly was back in the day. That was the thing to do is sort of have, you know, single sex education to, you know, prevent us from being tempted into the ways of the world. I don't know what it was for. You know, if it's a, a puritanical sort of thing. But, yeah, I went to the Baylor School for Boys. Uh, and interestingly enough, the Baylor School for Boys was a military academy up until the 70s, the 1970s when that started to get really unpopular because this thing called Vietnam, they couldn't get people in the door to pay the tuition because they were like military. Yeah. Not really selling these days. So, but it was still, uh, yeah, it was an all male school Academy until I think about the first hundred years or so of its existence. Yeah. I and recall the, reading, reading something that the Baylor has like a junior ROTC program or something like that. They absolutely did. They had all that. Yeah. But again, they were a full fledged, full fledged military academy. So there were uniforms and ranks and the whole thing for their entire existence up until the 70s. And then right after I left, within four years, I think, wow. even before I was even out of college, I said, you know what we should do? We should be co ed. I was like, great. <laughs> Thanks. Now Thanks you tell lot. me. Appreciate yeah. that. So, <laughs> so I. Yeah. I I could certainly relate to that, you know, that pain. That yeah, I, don't know, well, I don't know how you feel about it, but I'd certainly feel like I'm under socialized for half of the human beings on the face of the earth. Because, you know, when you're growing up and going through adolescence, you need to learn how to deal with people that you, you know, are yes. going to end up having relationships with later in life. I don't know, maybe getting married to or whatever. People tend to pair up. So if you're looking for a, a heterosexual relationship, you know, or learning how to develop those in at the Baylor school for boys, it was a tall order, my friend. It was not easy to do. So I don't think it served me well. Like I said, I made a lot of good friends, but it's, uh, it was not, it was painful to 
beginning of the school year, everything was fine. And then come around when the snow started to hit February, you're, you're trading playboys and penthouses like they're baseball cards. Oh, you know? man. <laughs> I mean, oh, boy. You, were, you were at least a day student. So you at least got to leave campus and see a girl at the Seven Eleven or something. I didn't see anybody. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, that's kind of reason why I started to get into uh, the theater program because the theater program was co-ed. Like we would borrow actresses from the girls school across town and they would do plays that they need actors for, you know, so like by being in the theater, it's like, Oh, you got to actually sort of interact with people who are not just, you know, um, Christian white males, which was our entire right. school, you know? And that's why I brought all this up because I was a late bloomer. Like my freshman year, I was five four, and then sophomore year, I sprouted up. I'm now six one, but went up to five eleven. But it was an awkward stage for me athletically, and I saw that that's same for you. It kind of drew you towards the arts, and that's how you got into drama and theater, right? Before you start playing the bass. Yeah. And I'm a, you know, I'm a lifelong distance runner. You know, I run, I, I ran five miles this morning, I run five miles every day sort of thing. So I'm not, I'm athletic, but right. being in a locker room in an all boys school and, and as a preteen was like just the most horrifying thought I could possibly imagine. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I was yeah. doing anything to get out of the athletic requirements, get away from that. I was not a team sport guy. You know, I'm right. an ensemble player in bands and, and theater projects, no problem. But it was just that whole sort of toxic masculine culture was not for me very early on. So yeah, I, I ran towards the performing arts. And uh, again, it's made the person you see before you today <laughs> as a result. Of course. So another sort of link between us uh, correlation is I literally was enrolled to go to Tulane. Oh, right. Yeah, but sure. long story short, last minute, my dad, he said it might be a better fit for me to go to the University of Georgia. Athens is a great place. Absolutely. Bohemian scene, music scenes, great. Great music town. And it was a wise decision because I'm so glad. I love the University of Georgia. I love Athens. I love New Orleans. but. I don't know if I would have made it. I might have flunked out because <laughs> the guy that I was in, going to room with, one of my yeah. best friends to this day, he ended up having to leave or wanting to leave because that's a tough place to study, man. Very, very difficult to keep your eyes <laughs> on your fries. You know, it's a party town. That's where you have Mardi Gras every year. You have Jazz Fest every year. You have live music every night of the week and tremendous live music. I saw the Neville Brothers probably once or twice a month, every month, you know, all the time. Uh, and and I got into the music scene there, too, you know, with the college radio station. But yeah, I managed to graduate somehow. Yeah. What did you I, f I forgot? What did you major in again? I started out as a biomedical engineering major. Oh, wow. Did that for two years and sort of by the middle of that, I was kind of, all of my classmates were then were, as you say, they're all sort of ROTC students and they were all dedicated, you know, destined for a commitment in the military. And I was like, these are not my, this is not my tribe. These are not my people, you know. So I, I ended up transferring and got a, a psychology degree. But mostly the entire time I was there, I was majoring in college radio. That's what I was doing. That was sort of my extracurricular thing that became my main thing. I became music director of the college station down there, WTUL, in my freshman year. And I was there, you know, I was the music director of that station the, almost the entire time there. And that's what sort of got me into the music business 
and got me involved in concert promotion down in New Orleans and, you know, dealing with the club owners and dealing with the record labels and all that stuff. In addition to the, the, the extracurricular bass playing I was doing at the time as well. Cause I wasn't, you know, I didn't start playing until I was a senior in high school. That was the first time I picked up a bass. So I was in no position to go off to music school or go to conservatory. You know, I had no idea that I was going to be a career path. It was too early for that. So that's why I went to Tulane, you know? So you went to Tulane and you were already kind of doing that in high school. In the book, you mentioned how you were calling up local radio stations so yeah. you could get the extra copies of the LPs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so you were doing that. And wasn't that sort of what were kind of drawn to the radio station initially? 100%. 100%. Yeah. I knew that radio stations are a place where they have free vinyl. <laughs> Right. That was my sole purpose in life. Like I found out through a friend of my aunt's who was a former publicist at Atlantic Records. Once of my one of my visits to the, meet the family in New York City, I met this lady who was a former publicist and she had a, a wall, a wall full of 12 inch vinyl. And she had extras like duplicate copies of things. I'm like, how do you afford that? Like, how, <laughs> right. You know, you must be spending all of your, you know, uh, disposable income and, and plus some to, to have a, a hu- collection that huge. She said, oh, no, they're all free. They're all promo copies. I was like, excuse me, come again? You know. Ding, ding. A light went off. <laughs> a light went off because she sent me home with an envelope with like a, a dozen free LPs. And it was yeah. like, it was hip stuff, too. It was uh, some like a new wave sampler from Warner Brothers Records, I remember, which had like Gang of Four and Public Image Limited. And uh, there was like Devo and Elvis Costello and oh, Patty nice. Smith. And I'm like this is for me. I'm good with this, you know? Yeah. yeah. So then I sort of made it my life's work to, you know, call up radio stations in Chattanooga and say, listen, I know you get a lot of free promo records and you (laughs) gotta, you must have all this extra vinyl that you need to dispose of. This was my conceit. You got to get rid of this stuff. So I'm going to provide you a service. I'm going to come get all those free records that you don't want and take them off your hands. So you don't have to put them in the landfill. And for some reason they bought this and they're like, yeah, okay, come on over, you know, and every few months I'd go over and just, you know, take out another hundred pieces of vinyl out of their <laughs> stacks. And, you know, maybe 20 of them were stuff I was interested in. The rest of the stuff could, could, was going to sure. end up in the landfill. But, you know, yeah, I started amassing this free record collection and that turned into the college radio station. I'm like, well, where do you have free records in New Orleans? At the college radio station. Who gets the free records? The music director does. <laughs> so that's right. the job I angle for. It's like, yeah, that's the job I want. And then, you know, once I graduated from Tulane, time to get free records, you know, go into the music industry, which I, I wanted to do anyway. You know, I wanted to work for a major record label. That was sort of my goal. But right. it didn't hurt that I also then, you know, I went to work for Epic Records in New York and I had access to their entire catalog, oh, which wow. at the time was just first coming out on compact disc. It's a new format they had in the late 80s called This compact. was 86, 87, maybe? Correct. I graduated yes, Tulane in 86. So okay. suddenly I've got the entire Columbia Epic CBS Records catalog at my hand in my hand. Mind blowing. And I was like, <laughs> oh well, all the new Miles Davis records, they all came out on CD this week. Right. I guess I'm ordering those, you know. So oh, yeah. that's what I that's what I did. So uh, yeah, you mentioned in the book, you're in New York. How long are you working for Epic in New York? Um total top to bottom, that was about three years, about a year and a half in New York and a year and a half in LA. So I started making copies and fetching coffee and all that stuff, you know, answering phones and then um, got promoted to uh, manager of West Coast publicity for Epic Portrait and CBS Associated Labels at a business card and a corporate Amex card, you know, 
expense right. account, the whole thing. I was living high on the hog. Yeah. I did that for about a year and a half in the Los Angeles office. And then I realized, you know, as I'm sort of in the corporate structure that the music business has very little to do with music. It's all marketing, which is nothing wrong with marketing, but that just wasn't what my interest was. I was interested in the creative side. I was, you know, becoming a more ambitious or, you know, musician, or at least having those, those aspirations. So, you know, I quit. I was like, I had an opportunity to go, you know, stay with a girlfriend in, in, in England. I was like, well, that sounds yeah. like an adventure. Yeah. So I'm going to do that and see if I can play bass for a living. And, uh, that was 89. I walked out of my, I gave up my, <laughs> my corporate salary, my corporate Amex card in 89 and haven't looked back, you know, yeah. it's worked out somehow. And that's the thing that I found so fascinating because you actually went back and you went to Berkeley College of Music, right? I did. I did. Yeah. Which is right up there. It's literally Ju Berkeley and Juilliard. They're like the Harvard of music schools. Uh, it's a big one. It's a big one. Yeah. And so that's where you really picked up the artistry of playing the bass, right? And, and, and not far from you, North Texas State University, one of the great music conservatory programs in the country. Okay. And uh, University of Miami. Those are like sort of the three or four programs that are kind of like major, what I would call sort of jazz music conservatories. Right. Uh, Juilliard, not so much. I mean, Juilliard has a tremendous jazz program, but they were, I think their initial reputation was more as a classical conservatory. Classic. Same yeah. thing with New England Conservatory, which is right up the street from Berkeley in Boston, you know. So I knew about Berkeley from, a, from being a kid, from reading in the guitar magazines. You would hear about this person or that person went to Berkeley. So... After I quit my corporate job and I moved to England and I was trying to make a, a living playing bass, I'd sort of been playing bass semi-professionally for maybe nine or ten years at that point. And I was realizing that what I needed to do if I was going to really make a go of this or really make a, a try was going to have to get educated because all of my education at that point had been self-taught or taking individual lessons one-on-one -on -one with a person, or I think I took a, I, I know I took a, a night class at uh, the Bass Institute of Technology in Hollywood uh, while I was working my day job at the, at the record label. Right. So I realized there was a lot of stuff about music because there was no music program at the Baylor School for Boys for some reason. It's a very ritzy private boarding school with no yes. music program. Yes. So, and maybe that's good because maybe I didn't, you know, I didn't get a, a belly full of it early on, you know, playing in marching band and get getting fed up with it. I never did that. Right. I never learned how to read music. So I said, all right, if I'm really going to try to make a career of this, I got to go to get myself educated. And Berkeley seemed to be to me like the ultimate place to do that. Knowing full well that there was no guarantee that there was going to be able to sort of make a go of it. Cause it's a, you know, the odds are, you're not going to be able to make a living as a performing artist. You know, just if you just look at the sheer numbers of people who actually sort of pay their rent doing it, it's a pretty small percentage. Yeah. I feel it's similar as the percentage of trying to be a professional athlete or something. You know, yeah. it's, it's a similar kind of probability of making. I think so. Well, certainly to make it big, you know, but you know, I'm trying to think like how many people sort of play on minor league baseball teams that are kind of, you know, one season of the year or at least getting their rent paid, you know, playing on a triple A team. Peanuts, man. Yeah, they don't make right. anything. Yeah. Or they'll, you know, look at uh, something for the summer. They'll make some money, but then it's, that's about it. That's right? it. You know? They're living in hotel rooms. Yeah. 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 So you go to Berkeley and then what happens once you graduate? 
So, yeah, I, I was kind of in a hurry to get through Berkeley at that point because I was a little older. Like, you know, I, I was 26 and the ripe old age of 26 by the time I went to the music conservatory, you know. So I knew I wanted to get in, get out, get what I needed and get back to New York City, which is where I felt the music that I was interested in was coming from. Looking back, I don't know. You know, I know I have a bunch of friends from mine from Berkeley who like opted for Los Angeles or Nashville instead. Those are other right. sort of big music centers. And they've had different, very different shaped careers than I have. You know, some of the people went to L.A. did a lot more sort of like national touring because there were a lot more of the national tours were leaving from L.A. Um, but for me, it seemed to be New York. Like I had a big plan in mind. I was like I was going to be a fusion jazz musician, like in the mold of somebody like a John Schofield type. And then okay. I was going to sort of ultimately I was going to get to play on the um, the Johnny Carson show or the, you know, J the Tonight Show, basically, whoever was hosting it. Right, David right. Letterman, uh, Madison Square Garden. Uh, those were going to I was going to uh, Saturday Night Live. Those are my goals. I was going to do all of those things. Uh, I've done exactly none of those things. Not one of those things has happened in my career. But, you know, I'm looking <laughs> at the rear end of a, a 30 year career playing bass. So. You know, you can make all the plans you want. But you did play on Conan O'Brien, correct? I did, but that's not the Tonight Show. That was like the David Letterman show after he gave it up. So, well, all right, you know, that's still pretty good deal. Who who were you playing with? Uh, that was when I was music director with Sam Moore uh, from Sam and Dave. He did a record on Rhino Records in 2006 that had a bunch of special guest artists on it, including Sting, Springsteen, Mariah Carey, Bon Jovi. Like, I had all these guest duets. So Travis Tritt, Winona Judd, um, Paul Rogers from Bad Company. So we did a bunch of promo behind that record. So that's when we did Conan. We did the Craig Ferguson show, if you remember that. Yeah. Uh, the Don Imus show. We did um, the Charlie Rose show back before he was a disgraced individual. Uh, we did uh, his thing. <laughs> you can so say that again. <laughs> that, was with, that was with Sting, though, you know, with Sam Moore and Sting. We did that. Okay. So we did a bunch of TV stuff behind it. So, yeah. But I never had, like, you know, the three, the big three that I had, which was, you know, Tonight Show, Letterman, Saturday Night Live. Nope, not one. <laughs> but you still, in the book, you have, if you don't mind me sharing, for instance, you mentioned towards the beginning, uh, Sly and the Family Stone. Yeah. You want to talk about that? I thought that, I think that's a fascinating story when you're in Japan. Yeah, because that, that was in, yeah, toward the beginning of the book, sort of like the first, one of the first chapters, I, I had a, a friend of mine who was a beta reader my friend dr jeff who lives in austin right now he just moved to austin but he 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 was reading an early manuscript and he said you know you have all these crazy stories about things just going wrong <laughs> left right and center there's you know things just going haywire he said what what if you put in a chapter that sort of said like what happens when everything works out goes the way you want it to so i opened the book or i think maybe the second chapter or something was one of the greatest concerts of, of my life, which was with Sam Moore from Sam and Dave. We were playing the Tokyo Jazz Festival uh, in front of 5,000 of our closest fans. We had a 15-piece band. The place was on fire. Sam was electrifying. He was just like elevated the entire room. It was just like one of the, and, and it was live on national television. So I have a film of it. So it wasn't just in my mind. I've seen I've seen it on, on YouTube. I'm like, yeah, that was, that was a good show. It can be found. It's on yeah. YouTube. Yeah, awesome. it can be found. It, 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 it was a really banging concert. It was like one of the, you know, 
maybe the pinnacle live shows I've ever done. Um, and then immediately after us was Sly and the Family Stone playing. And yep. I'm like, you know, I'm a huge fan, you know, who isn't? But you know, I answer, so, I guess. <laughs> yeah, my all time base, one of my all time base heroes is Larry Graham, the guy who invented the slap and pop technique, yep. you know, who came up with Sly and the Family Stone. Um, Larry was not there that day. He left the band in 70, 71, I think, 70, something like that. Um, so they, but they had four of the originals. They had uh, Sly Stone was there, Sister Rose, um, and Cynthia and Jerry, the horn players, were there. So they had a young band that would play like, you know, they'd come out and, you know, dance to the music, just pounding, right. pounding, 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 hit after hit after hit. And then at that point, whenever Sly was ready, and I don't know how much you know about his later career, but we, so. we, we assume that he's, he's <sighs> had some chemical problems yes. and some legal problems, which are documented. You know, the legal stuff is, is documented. The chemical stuff. I don't know about for sure, but I've heard from people who are, you know, with intimate knowledge and think that's probably what the problem was. So whenever he was ready, he just kind of would like kind of, and, and I say shuffle because he's, he's, he's kind of all hunched over now. Right. And he, he's kind of like, you know, he literally just kind of shuffles. So he shuffles out on stage and he just sits down at the keyboard and then he starts to play all the down tempo stuff. Like if you want me to stay like the, the slower kind of stuff. Sure. And it's thrilling, thrilling to see Sly Stone in person. But it's also like horrifying to know sort of what he was and think about him at Woodstock, you know, commanding a 400,000 people. And then to see this, you know, really damaged physical presence, just barely able to kind of shuffle over the keyboard. He was on stage for. I forget what I wrote in the book. 20, 22 minutes tops. Yeah, 22 minutes. And then he got up and he walked off. What I love, and it shows that music transcends all language barriers. Yeah, it does. You said the crowd was singing along in, in perfect knew English. every word. Knew every yeah. word. And that's what right. I love, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's kick ass. And you say that's available. Like I can find that, or is that just on the Sam Moore one? This, I don't know if the Sly set is available. I haven't seen it. Uh, which is not to say there's not out there because it was shot for, for national television. It, it ran live Japan, on, right. on NHK Japan, I think is what it was. But yeah, the Sam clip I've definitely seen for sure. It's on YouTube and it's great. It's re really good. I, you know, even as a, as a, uh, uh, impartial observer, I'm watching it going like, no, this, this is good. This, <laughs> it was a right. good band. And the fact that I'm, the fact that, that I'm on it's just, you know, incidental. Yeah. Wow. Stop. Yeah. What year was that? Uh, 08, you said? 08. I believe that was 08. Yeah. 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 We're going to go back. Another thing I got a kick out of. So this was before you had been traditionally trained in the bass. You did play with Bo Diddley a few times, did you I not? Did. I did. I think three three shows with him in New Orleans. He was using the pickup bands in those days. Uh, um whereby it was just him, he would travel and then he would use a local band, you know, to back him up. And his music is uh, amazingly simple, harmonically and rhythmically. Like we all know the Bo Diddley beat, bunch, gunk, dunch, bump, right. which he kind of made famous. It's, it's based on a, a Latin clave beat. So he didn't, he didn't invent it, but he certainly popularized it in a rock and roll context. And then the other thing to know about Bo is all of his songs or most of his songs are like one chord. So he plays his guitar as an open E tuning. So if he had no capo on the guitar, you were an E. If he had a capo on the third fret, you were an a, a G. If he had a capo on the fifth fret, you were an A. End of rehearsal. That was it. That's all you needed to know about it because right. he only ever played in those three keys. 
and you didn't need to worry about the chord changes because they, they wasn't none, you know? Yeah. Fascinating. Do you, do you mind sharing the bootleg story, please? Oh, sure. Sure. <laughs> All right. So Bo Diddley's the first rock and roll hall of famer I ever played with. And it was even before he was inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame. But all I knew that he was a national star and a pioneer and a creator of the genre that we know as rock and roll. So I'm thrilled as a young musician, Absolutely. you know, as a biomedical engineering student or whatever the heck I was at the time to be able to back up the great Bo Diddley. And I know that this is like, you know, a, a wonderful opportunity for me. And I just happened to get it because I knew the the booking agent personally and I had to audition for it. And the band leader was basically the criterion was if I could play at all, I probably had the gig <laughs> and I could play at all. So, you know, I had a good feel and, you know, I got the job. So I think the, the third time I got to play with him, I said, you know, I, this is the third time I'm getting to do this. I would love to have some physical record, some souvenir of what this is, you know, to sort of have in, in my collection, you know, because we didn't, these are the days before camera phones, you know, like you had to bring a camera with you for, so I don't have a picture with Bo or anything like that. I, I wish I did, you know, so, but I had no souvenir. So my brilliant idea I came up with as, as a radio DJ, as I was at the time, I brought a 90 bit, 90 minute, a high bias cassette tape with me blank. And I right. gave it to the sound guy and I said, you know, do you mind? Because I knew he had a cassette deck on the soundboard. Or most most clubs did. Like, Would you mind recording? I'd love to hear it. You know, I'd love to have it as, just as a personal souvenir. I wasn't trying to uh, to do anything with it or bootleg the show or sell it. Um, and I remember having a conversation with Bo at one of the rehearsals, and he's got a guitar that's got eight million knobs on it. Like he went to the to the luthier and he picked up all these pedal effects he said yeah put that in the guitar put that in the guitar the guitar weighed a ton it had like a, a you know eq and phase shifter and all the stuff like built into the wood of the guitar oh, wow. and, he, and he said this you see this but this knob right here and he turned it you know and he, i said what does that do he's like that's the anti-bootleg knob <laughs> anti-bootleg yeah i was like what does that mean he said what it does is it it puts a a, a squeal on the tape so if they try you can't hear it when you when we're playing live but if they play back the tape you know they'll squeal on it and the tape will be ruined they won't be able to release it and i was like okay bo you know <laughs> whatever you say i'm not sure that's a thing that's nothing that's something i've ever heard of you know so that should have been my clue to know right. that you know recording bo diddley was not a good not idea permitted. <laughs> not permitted not permitted but this still hadn't you know i was still more anxious to have just a personal souvenir because again i wasn't doing this for any commercial gain or anything like that so it was two shows that night and i think i uh, you know i gave him one one cassette like a 90 minute cassette like turn it over and do it in both sides or something and he said uh when i got at the end of the night i went to the sound guy i said uh do you have the tape so yeah i have the tape but there was something wrong with the something 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 i don't know what he what he said so I taped over the first set. So it's only one side. It's just the second show only. I'm like, okay, fine. You know, and I took the tape home and I'm just so thrilled. I got this cassette tape of me playing with Bo Diddley. It's going to be great. I'm going to put it in the tape recorder and I'm going to listen to it. And I listened to it and I don't know how he did this. What I had on tape was a recording of bass, guitar, drums, and piano. All, only instruments, no vocals. So he got, he gave me an instrumental recording <laughs> of the show. And, you know, so we're just playing in the E chord, chunk, 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 chunk,
So there's no none of his performances there. I mean, except his guitar playing. None of his, none of the joke telling. Like, there's no vocal on the tape. So I'm like, well, this is absolutely worthless to me. You know, it, it's it proves nothing. You know, and then I get a call, phone call. This is like two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> it's the club owner saying, like, yeah. did you record the show tonight? And I'm like, well, yeah. Why? He's like. You better get back down here right now, mister. Get in a cab, get here right away, because Bo is here, and he's pissed. <laughs> right. I'm like, uh-oh, you know. Oh, shit, better go. Better go, you know. Exactly. And here's another thing, sort of in retrospect, like, why did I go back down there? There's no possible reason. I could have just hung up the phone and go, like, yeah, whatever, dude. Like, <laughs> get a life. So for some reason, I'm still too young and too innocent and too stupid to know. So I took a cab, and I go back down there. And then he said, like, where's the tape? I'm like, here's the tape. It's like, there's only one tape here. It's two shows. I'm like, listen, the sound guy said that, you know, he something was wrong with the tape so that he only recorded the second show. And meanwhile, and I didn't know this, I found out when I got down there, Bo, to prevent people from recording his shows, would give his own cassette to the sound guy and say, here, record the show, so that he would walk out with the only cassette copy of the show thereby ensuring that nobody who recorded it because he had the only recording. And somehow the sound guy, not only had he screwed up the recording, not only had he, you know, only recorded one show with no vocals on it, but he had somehow misplaced Bo's tapes. They were gone. Oh God. So he's like not believing anybody's story right now. He is livid, you know, and I'm like, I swear to God, that's what the story is. You know, like I, this, you know, I, I know it sounds stupid. It, it's completely unbelievable. But I have one tape recorded on one side only with no vocals. That's what I have. And here, you're welcome to have it back. I don't want it. It's of no use to me. So the club owner just says, let me talk to you for a second. He pulls me into the kitchen. He said, listen, you need to convince the man that what you're saying is absolutely true. Or I will shoot you dead and I will burn down this club with your body in it. <laughs> Do you understand? I'm like... You know, and so like I went out to uh, to Bo and I just started immediately going, you know, I've just been threatened with capital murder, first degree yeah. murder. I'm like, uh, I just went into an immediate sort of ugly cry, you know, just full <laughs> out bawling like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't do it. I didn't know this is the, I swear to God what I'm telling you is true. So because I completely, completely came apart in front of, of Bo, he's like, all right, you're cool. <laughs> it let yeah. Me go. But yeah, yeah I, was, I was one of the few times I've been threatened with actual physical murder in my life. And um, I shall remember it always oh, as a fond memory. Right. Indirectly related to Bo Diddley, mind you. It wasn't Bo. Bo was wasn't, cool. No, I know. But, you know, this, this is like the antithesis of the Grateful Dead and the taper community. <laughs> That's what this reminds me. 100% opposite. Polar opposite, man. 100%. Because you know? they, they just had a different philosophy about it. And I think Bo, I think Bo, I know Bo was so badly done to by the recording industry throughout the years that he'd seen records of his, you know, in record stores. And I was like, I didn't record this. I didn't authorize this. And I'm not getting paid for it. So, you know, he took it personally. I don't blame him, you know. But again, I was too young and too stupid to not to know that that was not a, a thing <laughs> that was done. All right. And I've had similar trouble later in years. And, and, and we mentioned YouTube a minute ago with that, with that um, great Sam Moore recording. You know, in the early days of YouTube, um, I posted uh, a recording of the, our appearance that we made on the Conan O'Brien show. Because I wanted to be able to show it to my family and friends who, wasn't, who weren't necessarily up at 1230 in the morning to see it, you know. 
man, I got in such trouble for that. I'm pretty sure I got fired one of my several times from Sam's band for doing that. <laughs> I'd apologize, really? take it down. It's it's and P.S. It's up there again today. You know, you can okay, see it. Cool. You know, but it's not Good. not not my. I didn't post it, so <laughs> somebody else did. Somebody else did. And same thing with the Tokyo performance. That's not me. It came from somebody else. I didn't bootleg, quote unquote. It wasn't me. So, right. So enlighten me, humor me. Who are some of the other artists that you collaborated with over your career? Well, the uh, tagline in the bio says I have performed with 50 inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Right. And appeared in 12 Broadway shows. So, yeah, all of those things are happening. You want a list? It's a long list. It's, you know. Well, I, I've, I've printed off of the list now. <laughs> my my resume is uncovered conscionably long gloria Gaynor, yeah, sure. uh, nile rogers and elvis costello i mean there's it's all over the shirelles yeah i started with the shirelles basically when i came back to new york after berkeley the first gig that i did uh, on the classic soul classic rock and roll circuit was with the shirelles and it's through the shirelles then i met the tokens and the drifters and okay. their drummer was a guy named crusher green the late great crusher green who was music director for wilson pickett for 35 yep. years or something and crusher was a uh, the drummer in a band in new york city called the uptown horns review and the uptown horns they are the horn section on b52's love shack rolling stone steel wheels tour cameo word up tom waits rain dogs they're hugely successful recording horn section so they needed a bass player kind of last minute for a show that they had at the bottom line and crusher as a drummer recommended me because he'd seen me with the shirelles and he knew that i did my homework and prepared for the show for the show so that first night at the bottom line in 1994 was the uptown horns review featuring bernard fowler who sings with a band called the rolling stones wow. living colors guitar player uh, vernon reed and uh, peter wolf from the jay giles band that was like that was my first night with them you know, nice. and then they became the pickup band of choice for a, a lot of the great R&B stars that would come through New York. So through them, then I, that's how I met Sam Moore from Sam and Dave. That's how I met Solomon Burke, Percy Sledge, Rufus Thomas, Carla Thomas, Eddie Floyd, on and on and on. So like all these things sort of happened. Uh, and a couple of the people you mentioned, like Elvis Costello and Sting, those were all special guests of, for the Sam Moore band. So, right. You know one thing kind of led to another to another to another uh and, and again only in the rearview mirror does it start to make any sense <laughs> what do you mean by <laughs> it just feels surreal to you at times when you think back it does it does and, and, and you know how do you get from solomon burke to elvis costello i'm not sure but i know now you know all those people elvis sting springsteen all those guys bono they're all fans of sam and dave yeah sam came before them he's got this amazing first tenor voice he's got this you know indescribable instrument in his body he just doesn't warm up he doesn't practice he doesn't you know he just walks out on stage and opens up his mouth and that voice comes out so all of these rock stars, no matter how big they are, like standing next to Sam, I met Springsteen, Bono, Robert Plant, The Edge, all the, you know, however big an ego you might think any rock star has ever had, they don't have an ego in front of Sam. They all come sort of like bowing down to him because yep. he came before them and he's got this instrument. So it's, it's very unique standing next to him for 13 years, which I did. Wasn't Sting concerned about him being able to... <laughs> To perform the way 
Yeah. Wasn't he being a little rigid? And <laughs> Sting is a tremendous performer. He's a and he's, of course, an amazing musician. But amazing musician. Uh, you know, so this the thing that you incident you're talking about. Uh, Sam Moore and Sting were to be special guests with Nile Rogers and Sheik at a big yep. fundraiser that he's got called the We Are Family Foundation that he does every year. Uh, this is the Hammerstein Ballroom in New York City. So I got brought in to be Sam's conductor. They didn't even let me play bass. I just stood in front of the band and like waved my arms around the air to, to sort of cue the song. Sting, being the meticulous performer that he is, brought his own personal teleprompter and operator to sort of have the lyrics on a t- TV monitor at his feet. So there was going to be no chance for him. He was going to, he, he came in prepared. He knew every word. He knew every melody. You know, he was ready to go. Sam, on the other hand, is a much more improvisational kind of being. Right. So somebody, I don't know where this came from because it wasn't Sam's choice and it wasn't Sting's choice, but somebody decided that they needed to sing as a duet. This is going to be their big duet. Just the two of us, the Bill Withers, Grover Washington yeah, song. Yeah. Great tune. Yeah. I don't know why it got chosen, <laughs> but whatever, both management camps agreed to it. So Sting is there, Mr. Sting, I called it. Mr. Sting is there with this teleprompter that has all the words on it, right? So they get you out there for rehearsal, and Sam, bless his heart, has looked at neither the words nor the melody. Like, basically, he knows the hook, you know, just the two of us. We can, you know, he knows the hook, but he doesn't know the verses, not particularly, but he's got the words in front of him. So, you know, they're out there, the band's kind of playing the intro vamp, and uh, this happened on the show too. Like uh, Sam points down at the teleprompter and said, "Is that me?" <laughs> Sting goes, "Yeah, that's you." And Sam points down at me. He said, "Yeah, you." And so he starts singing, kind of just he's singing the words that he sees in front of him, and and kind of a vague sort of not particular melody or rhythm, you know, until they get to the hook of the song when it sort of starts to drop in. Um, so it's loose. It's loose. To 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 be fair, it's really loose. So after the rehearsal, we go back to to catering, you know, and I'm sitting there getting all the free Fig Newtons I can or whatever was back there. (laughs) And Mr. Sting comes up to me and he says, "Um, is he going to be all right out there? And I said, listen, here's what you need to understand. Those Stax recordings that you know and love that, you know, are part of your your DNA, those guys in the studio sang that song one time. One Isaac take. Hayes, one yep. take. Well, I mean, it might be multiple takes, but they well, say yeah. like Isaac Hayes and David Porter, the writers of those songs and the producers at Stax, taught them the songs around the piano in the studio, and they learned it just long enough to be able to do a complete take of it. You know, whether it took one or two takes, whatever to get it. Right. Uh, the same. The 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 Memphis horn players, uh, they called this slate memory because what they would learn a a, a an arrangement by um, you know by ear play the song and then they would erase the slate and start the next song. And then the last song was gone Complete, You know, we did it one time ever. So then when suddenly when soul man becomes a huge international worldwide smash hit, now Sam and Dave to go out and to perform it, have to learn their own song. <laughs> oh, God. They don't yeah. know it. And same thing yeah. with the backing band, Booker T and the MGs. They had to learn their hits because they played them once, you know? So I said, I told Mr. Sting, that's the thing. Number one, you have to understand thing. Number two, you have to understand is like, uh, I don't know what he's going to do out there. You don't know what he's going to do out there. And furthermore, he doesn't know what he's going to do out there. 
He's going to go out there with a complete, just open heart, open arms, and he's going to improvise something, and it's going to be fantastic. But we don't know how he's going to get there, and he doesn't know how he's going to get there. So, you know, he sort of seemed, Mr. Sting sort of seemed, you know, satisfied with his after. It seemed like in the story I read, he was still a little skeptical. but <laughs> Perhaps, perhaps. But, you know, but I, I assuaged him, his fears as, right. as best I can, and knowing full well that Sam is going to go out there and kill. Crunch but, it, yeah. With that in the back of my mind, I said, you know, maybe I should talk to Sam. So I went back to Sam's dressing room. I said, hey, hey, man, uh, you want to uh, take a quick look at the, you know, the lyrics or the melody, listen to that Bill Withers song? He said, nope. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> then we're done. And when they went out for the gig, Sam pointed at the teleprompter. He said, is that me? Sting said, yeah, that's you. And he said, that's, that's me? Like, yeah, that's you. And he did the same thing again. It was sort of like, oh, you know. But by the time they got to the hook of the song, Sam and Sting are trading improvised phrases. And they lifted the roof off the place. It killed, you know, which is why Sting is a fan of Sam's, you know, and why they're all a fan. Because he knows it's like, it's like you know, raised in the gospel church it's going to get to some incredible height you just don't know how it's going to get there and it's going to require you know some actual physical call and response in the room so share with the listeners who wrote the foreword for your book oh that's a a a bass player from uh, philadelphia pennsylvania a gentleman by the name of stanley clark and uh stanley's a friend of mine for 35 years or something i met him when I was at my college radio station, because uh, back in those days, uh, when concerts would come through town, you know, if the artist had time or energy, it was a 1500 watt station. So it covered, you know, Metro New Orleans. It probably had a listenership, a potential listenership of like a million people, even though the actual listenership, who knows what it was. But, you know, so artists would come down to do interviews on the station and promote their shows. And he was playing at uh, Jimmy's Live Music Club, you know, on tour for his album Find Out. Yep. So he came down to the station and uh, did an interview and I, I met him and uh, I think I interviewed him maybe once again, the next time he was through town, I think he came through town opening for Miles Davis. And then when I went to go work for uh, Epic Records in New York, that happened to be Stanley's record label. So suddenly I went from, you know, being pals with him to being like his publicist and writing uh, his biography and writing liner notes for one of his albums. If this bass could only talk that came out in 88, I think I wrote all the liner notes for that. Um, he gave me a couple of lessons at the house. You know, I have one of his lessons framed on my wall. It's just out of camera, you know, that I've had all these years. He just wrote on a piece of manuscript paper, like a couple of motifs, like here, learn this in all 12 keys and come back when you're ready. I'm like, okay. So I, I've been pals with him for, you know, 35 years. So anytime he's in town, you know, I go, I go ambush him when he's playing at the blue note or, you know, uh, we've hung out and been in contact for all that time. So, I asked him, I said, you know, I'm doing a book. Would you be willing to write a forward for it? He said, yeah, no problem. Well, let's also disclose that he's considered one of the greatest bases of all time. I, I certainly <laughs> consider him that, you know, uh, that's reasons why I wanted to be his friend. It was like, you know, at, at, at that time I was a disciple. It was like, he is one of the all time in- innovators on the electric bass and the acoustic bass too, you know, but he, yeah. he, and, and I say, almost equal measures at at a slightly later time, Jaco Pastorius sort of elevated the electric bass into the front of the stage as a soloist instrument. 
in a way that had never really happened before that. So he's a true, true pioneer. Just turned 70 last year and is still playing like an amazing, amazing player. You know, I, every time I see him play, I just think to myself, well, I can't do that. You know, that's not that's not how I play, but I do a different thing, you know, and uh, I'm more of a, a Stax and Motown kind of guy. So that's how I've been paying my rent. Do you know personally, speaking of bases, Tina Weymouth and Chris France? I do. Friends, I do. Friends with, I mean, Talking Heads is one of my favorite bands of all time. So, mine too. Yeah. And, and Tom Tom Club. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, for sure. I'm probably as big or bigger a Tom Tom Club fan as I am a Talking Heads fan. Again, one thing it follows logically from another. So, when I told you about working for the Uptown Horns band, so the alto player in the Uptown Horns is a gentleman named Crispin Seo. And I've been working with Crispin and his band, Cracked Ice, for 25 years, more probably now. Um, uh, Crispin lives in a town called Westport, Connecticut. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, Chris France and Tina Weymouth live in a town called Westport, Connecticut. So they're neighbors. You know, they, they, they work together. So I've been playing with Crispin with Uptown Horns and Cracked Ice gig. And Chris and Tina will, like, show up at the gigs. I've gotten – and I've shown up at their gigs, you know. And, and they're just the sweetest, greatest people Chris even wrote a very kind blurb for the book, which I put in. The, That's in why the I brought it up. Yeah, one of the reasons yeah. why. Let's not forget Tina Weymouth. She's a badass bassist as well. That, that bass line at the beginning of Psycho Killer. Yeah. I mean, that is epic. Iconic. That's seminal, man. I mean, you cannot. Uh, Iconic. You, you know who it is. You, in two notes, you know who it is. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and so I think that's really badass that you know them. And uh, her friends. That's yeah. really cool. They're, they're really, uh, they're any really chance you can talk them into getting <laughs> talking heads to have a reunion? Oh, dude. I, I don't know what's going on over there, but I um, do know that it's very unlikely to happen. I know. I mean, it was a miracle that they performed together for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame back it was in 2003. It was like a miracle. I knew that. It was a miracle, yeah. I, I don't know where the. the uh, where the resistance is, but I think I have an idea. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not for us to speculate on. We've talked, mentioned a couple. So, give me your top ten bassists of all time, in your opinion. Oh wow. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Uh, uh, Tina is right up there. Tina Weymouth. Yeah. Um, probably, sort of knowing how my career has gone and the amount of rent i've been able to pay and keep the light bills on you know emulating their music i'd have to say james jameson from motown yeah duck dunn from stacks and george porter jr from the meters those have sort of been the three that have, i've probably stolen the most from Sissy strut just kiss my baby you yeah. can't beat that yeah. man i love george porter jr he's one of my favorite unbelievable favorites. unbelievable and you know george is a, a friend too i've seen him you know I, when I was in New Orleans, I would go see him play every possible opportunity I got. Yeah. Uh, on the jazz side, it would have to be Stanley Clark and Chaco Pastorius, probably. Uh, on the rock side, it was probably early days for me, John Entwistle. Yeah. Who, like uh, some of the early of bass lines I tried to sort of figure out as a kid. Uh, Rick James, believe it or not, uh, not as a bass player so much because his bass player was the guy Oscar uh, Alston, I believe. Like Rick James hearing those records on the radio was, you know, some of the people that really early on influenced me to try to figure out how to play. I don't know if you know the band Mother's Finest out of Atlanta. I, I've, I don't, you know, I don't know them certainly as much as 
we were talking about prior. Yeah. But, uh, certainly heard of them. Yes. Of course. Their bass player is a guy named Wizard, and he is amazing. Amazing. He's he's unbelievable. And Moses Moe is a guitar player from that band who I've come to work with in later years, too. Like These are people that I grew up listening. And Mother's Finest, they definitely had national uh, hits, and, and but they were probably more famous in the Southeast. They probably toured down there a lot. But you would see them on bills with like the Atlanta Rhythm Section and, uh, you know, Southern rock bands. They toured with all those kind of bands. There was a, there was a tour that they did. Um, it was a band called Nantucket that my buddy Kenny Soul was in. Um, they did a tour, I think, in the summer of 79 or 80 that was Mother's Finest, Nantucket, and ACDC. Oh, wow. An arena tour with those three bands, you know, for a whole summer. So Cliff Williams. Yeah. <laughs> yeah heavy. Interestingly enough, like before that, ACDC was a very blues-based rock and roll band to my ears. You know, they really came out of like electric blues in their hard rock approach. After that, when they went into, after they'd spent a summer with Mother's Finest, which is heavy funk rock rift based things, suddenly like ACDC became back in black. I was like, huh, I wonder <laughs> if they weren't listening in the wings every night going like, you know, I think these guys have something that we might be able to use to our advantage, you know? Yeah. Well, just speculating, just speculating. But- no, that's how I mean. That's how music is. People, influences and, and things. That's how music absolutely created. Yeah, that's um, right. I mean, thank God the English bands across the pond. It's, I'm I'm embarrassed that it took the Stones and the Beatles and everybody <laughs> to get us into muddy waters. And yeah, and exactly right. But that's you know that's how it happened. They, they sort of they tried to recover that music. They didn't quite get it right. They kind of got it wrong. You know, the Beatles trying to play Little Richard, and it doesn't really sound like Little Richard at all. Right. But, you know, they came up with something new and, and sold it back to us. And Rolling Stones, yeah, covering Willie Dixon. Zeppelin to a degree, you know. 100%. Uh, John Mayall and the Blues Breakers. Oh, yeah. We had a, a young kid named Eric Clapton who did one of the first Les Paul electric blues albums in the world. He's playing Muddy Waters, you know. Yep. Yeah. I'm so fascinated by how that all transpired, mm-hmm. the irony of it all. Yeah. You know? So you, you mentioned Broadway. What, tell me about how you've been involved on uh, Broadway. Broadway. So to date, I have, I, I've been a substitute musician on 12 different Broadway shows. Um, the way the, the show, the 802 local, uh, uh, American Federation of Musicians Local Union 802, Chapter 802, uh, way their contract is worded, if you have a Broadway chair, if you're the, the, the bass player assigned to play Wicked, for instance, or Hamilton, whatever it is, you're allowed to sub out up to 50% of your performances and still keep your chair. So it allows you to do a couple of things. One, not go crazy by playing the exact same show eight shows a week, you know, because if you do that night after night, month after month, year after year, You'll, I think you'll, you'll turn into a crazy person. I think you'll have oh, to be yeah. institutionalized. <laughs> so it allows you to do that. It also allows you to go out and do other things and keep, you know, your contacts up and other, um, other avenues of the industry, you know, like, you know, go play concerts to go do, you know, tours to come back. So um, as such, every chair and every orchestra has up to usually five different subs per chair so 
the first one I subbed on was a show called Rock of Ages, which is an uh, an 80s rock musical. It used like, you know, um, White Snake and Pat Benatar and Journey songs made into a, a, a jukebox <laughs> musical. Uh, and that one came to find me, actually. You know, Winston Roy, who was the bass player on that show, asked me if I would be interested in subbing for him on that show. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great, you know. And that show ended up running six and a half years, I think, on Broadway. So I did like close to 300 performances over there over the years. And then what was interesting to me was like, you know, I'd been a professional musician in New York City already for getting on 20 years by that point. And as soon as you move into Midtown, into the Broadway world, suddenly I was meeting people that were also professional musicians in New York for 20 years, and I'd never heard of them. And they'd never heard of me. I'm like, we, we're, I'm 20 blocks away from you over right. here playing at the bitter end. How do I not know you? How have we never crossed paths? So what I came to find out, it, it's a very sort of genre unto itself. There are people that do only theater. That's what they do, you know, and they do that. Yeah. That's what yeah. they love. That's their thing, which is fine. Because I, And I, I found that I knew a few people in the theater world that I knew from what I call the world, the rest of the world, like outside of Broadway. You know, a couple guitar player, horn player, a couple of guys that I knew from the world. But, you know, as you get into Midtown, suddenly now you're meeting the people in that community. So from Rock of Ages now, suddenly I'm, I met the guys, you know, I ended up subbing on Spider-Man, you know. Okay. Uh, and then I ended up subbing on Kinky Boots and then um, Hedwig and the Angry Inch and uh, Fun Home and... The Donna Summer musical, I did that was a great one. That was a lot of fun. Nice. There was a Jimmy Buffett musical that lasted about four <laughs> four months. Came and went really fast. It was so much fun to play, but but the 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 book, I think the the, the book was not well received. Let's put it that way. Like the story yeah, they yeah. were telling was kind of like nah. We yeah. like the songs, but nah. Not so much. And I just started working over at Jersey Boys now. I'm subbing at Jersey Boys, you know, because that. And that ran on Broadway for, I think, 10 years. And now it's running off Broadway at a place called New World Stages. So my friend Sharice, who was the bass player at the Donna Summer musical, said, oh, I need subs over at Jersey Boys. You interested? And I'm like, yeah. So I played Jersey Boys last night, as a matter of fact. So oh, awesome. I just started 15 years late to this party, but I just started subbing at Jersey Boys. Better late than never, right? <laughs> and what's interesting about that one is we have choreography. So for the the finale and the bows, like the bass and guitar player are on stage, and we have a whole routine that we have to do, which was really difficult for me to learn. You're tall too. How tall are you? Oh, about six five without the pumps and the hair. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. 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 But so they're trying to teach you to choreograph all this. As well. Meanwhile, the cast has to dance and sing for two and a half hours, and I come out there for the last ninety seconds, going, "Yeah, this is hard," and they're like, "Yeah, give me." <laughs> They, they were probably pissed. They're like, Go oh, there. man. <laughs> and this is the second show where I've had to dance on stage. The first one was Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations. Okay. Um, and that one opened. It just closed, sadly. It was such a great show. So I'm playing Motown, James Jamerson lines in the pit for two and a half hours. For the last 90 seconds of the show, the entire orchestra comes on stage. We're all dressed in white suits, playing white instruments. This big, this big video wall goes up. There's a huge reveal at the end, and the whole cast turns around, and goes down on the knees, you know, and puts their arms out to the band. And suddenly, there's like a 16-piece orchestra, and we're all dancing in uniform, in unison, and in uniform too. And the crowd goes ballistic because this is a huge reveal. Like, like where do these people come from? Like, have we been listening to them all night? 
And the cast was like, you know, I've been out here dancing, singing, acting, and sweating for two and a half hours. And you guys get the biggest, you know, round of yeah. applause of the night because you know, because the wall goes up and there's just just so many of you. I'm like, yeah, what can you do? <laughs> so for, obviously, so you've collaborated and played with 50 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees. What humor me in the audience? What artists do you wish you could have collaborated or come across in the industry? That's so interesting. So interesting. I would be honored to share a stage with Stevie Wonder one day. Uh, that'd be kick-ass. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's another one, an early, early, early childhood hero of mine. Sure. Steely Dan. I would love to play with Steely Dan someday. You know, I don't know that these things will ever necessarily happen. And I've had a tremendous, interesting career with other people, but there's still people on the bucket list. I still haven't played Madison Square Garden, trying to get in there, you know. We'll see what happens with that. You still got time. I got time. I'm not done yet. Where do you, with everything with the pandemic, like what are you yeah. noticing? Where are you seeing the music industry evolve? What's going on in your opinion? It's It's been a tough one. We didn't work for 15 months. We sat home for 15 months doing nothing. Uh, last June of 2021, the private party business started to come back. The weddings uh weddings funerals and bar mitzvahs that's my sort of standard joke for those those gigs came back and those had been sort of like postponed and canceled all throughout the pandemic so suddenly we had double and triple bookings we got very busy with those yep shortly after that some of the concerts came back the classic soul classic rock concerts those started to come back piecemeal i did some gigs last year with Jay and the Americans and uh, little Anthony and the Imperials. And then the theater stuff started to come back in the fall, I guess, like between September, October, some shows started reopening. So that started to come back, but they're not all fully back yet. And then with the yep. latest Omicron wave that really hit the theaters really hard and people had to go through some temporary cancellations, about three or four shows closed for good, including Ain't Too Proud. They couldn't withstand that sort of hit. So that the crest of that wave seems to have passed where some wood I can knock on seems to have passed yeah. in the New York City area at the moment. So we're kind of hopeful that things will kind of get back to quote unquote the new normal, whatever that is. I, I'm very hopeful that there's a, a tour that I might be able to go out on later this year. We're waiting for a phone call. So many things got postponed and then, you know, rescheduled and then they got spooked again with this latest wave. So trust me, as a music fan, yeah. I've been frustrated as hell because here in Austin, a band had tickets for literally would reschedule four times. Yeah. And I'm like, when is this going to happen? Yeah. Like, yeah. And that's what my joy in life is. I love live music. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why I moved here to Austin. Yeah. You know, it's like a hobby, a passion of mine. And so this was I'm not a musician like yourself, but God, it was so depressing. <laughs> it was the worst. Well, same here. I mean, I, I, the last little Anthony in the Imperial show I did, I think, was in uh, Greensburg, Pennsylvania at the Palace Theater. And I looked at the marquee or, you know, the website, and it, that show had been postponed four times. It was the fourth time. It was scheduled for 2020 and then 2021. And then later, in 20, you know, it was like fourth time lucky. We finally got the show done. But like then that was post delta pre-omicron you know there was right, a trough right, in there where right. we got it done of course and then oh that wasn't the last one because the last one i did with little anthony i did a cruise ship with him when was that october something yeah we played it we we flew down to um, cancun mexico and got on a boat and uh it was like a 
classic rock, classic soul. Uh, it's called the Malt Shop Memories Cruise. Oh, so wow. we did a cruise ship, you know, and now the CDC is saying, whatever you do, don't get on a cruise ship. I'm like, well, so we just happened to hit that trough at the right time, too. There were no cases on the boat. We were all tested getting on and getting off. It was fine. But it's a little touch and go right now, especially with the theater stuff. All the theaters all have COVID safety managers on staff at the stage door yeah. now, you know. Yeah, no, it's very, uh, understandably so, it's very strict, as it should be. I got tested twice uh, today. I got tested once yesterday. Twice? Twice. Did you? Twice. Okay. I'm getting tested a minimum. Jersey Boys? Jersey Boys. I have to have a negative PCR test within 72 hours of performing. And if it's within, the PCR test is good for four days. But if after two days, then I have to take another antigen test on top of that rapid test. So yesterday... I still had my PCR that was good from Friday, but I had to take an antigen test at the at the stage door to be able to perform. And then oh, wow. today I got swabbed for the remainder of the week so that I'm eligible to work Tuesday through Friday. And I went to this, the, the, we have these testing vans on the street here, you know, it seemed very legitimate. The guy in the van is like <laughs> holding out a Q-tip, like you want to swab. Oh, sure. So I said, I just need a PCR test. Like, no, we have to do PCR and rapid antigen test. I'm like, you're scamming somebody, but okay. So he swabbed me twice. I'm like, great. All good. Well, brave new world, I guess. Nose is clean. Been swabbed out twice a day. The last thing I wanted to ask you is during all of this, have you been able to write some of your own music? Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, 15 months we sat home and couldn't go anywhere and didn't do anything. So I've been a composer you know of my own stuff sort of over the years uh, maybe about a dozen years ago i had a couple of friends of mine that we had a recording project band that we would meet at the drummer's house and we would each bring in compositions and record each other's stuff so i have like a huge catalog of stuff that we've done like kind of a fusion trio kind of stuff that we've done when we got locked down i found that all my friends were all in the same boat and a lot of them a lot of them had recording gear at home already but then i think the the pandemic made us all like studio owners like we all are now <laughs> had to learn how to be mix engineers and our own engineers so i was able to call people that i wouldn't ordinarily would have been too busy to to sort of play on my stuff and they're all like yeah i'm sitting home i'm not doing anything so like we did by file sharing i would get yes. together a you know a drum machine and like bass track and send it out to a keyboard player and he would play his part send it back send it out to the guitar player he'd play his part send it back Makes it, right? Percussion, horns. I have like some <laughs> six-piece bands, you know, and horns multi-tracking. So like the last single I did, I think Crispin is playing three or four horns on it. So I've got like a four-piece horn section on it. You know, percussion, drums, bass, guitar. It's It's been great. And, and all of my stuff is being released now by a company called Color Red Music out of uh, out of Denver. Um, so yeah, colorred.com. You can hear all the all the latest as well as all my catalog stuff we, we got a i have 120 tracks i think that i gave them and I, and of those i have another 40 or 50 that are still as yet unreleased they can yet to to see the light of day so they're they're being mixed and mastered as we speak for uh future releases so yeah i got a lot of stuff uh, okay who, who proclaimed you Funk Boy, by the way? Oh, that was interesting. All the best nicknames are, are bestowed upon one. One does not choose them for oneself. Right. You know, it wouldn't, <laughs> yes. that would not be, uh, 
that would be rude. That was bestowed upon me by my fellow disc jockeys at the college radio station because of my background and my my history and fandom. I knew more about funk and soul and R&B music. So I was the guy at the station who knew that stuff. So they started calling me Funk Boy. Had nothing to do with bass playing. It was just, you know, the records that I played on the air. And uh, I was like, I'll accept that. I'll take that as a a moniker. And Sure. Could be a lot worse. Well, yeah, now I'm (laughs) a funk, very middle-aged man. But, you know, it kind (laughs) of stuck with me for this long. I can't really shake it. And and I don't want to. It's it's served me well. It's good. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, I I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. I really appreciate it. The pleasure's entirely uh, mine. Thank you yeah, so much for having me. I could I could talk to you for another six hours, but oh, there's lots of stories <laughs> to tell. Hence why I wrote the book. I write them all down, you know. I know, and so I I've already made you tell like three or four, <laughs> so I don't want to run it. But you can find it on Amazon, correct? It's on Amazon, and everything, all the links to all of my stuff are at my website, funkboy.net, F-U-N-K-B-O-Y.net, including links to Amazon and uh, all that, all the YouTube, all the recordings. Way, way more than you ever want to know about me is at funkboy.net. So, all right, yeah. nice. Well, uh, again, thank you so much, and it's been a pleasure, man. Man, I appreciate it. Thank you. I hope you all enjoyed listening to Ivan share his colorful stories that span over 30 years about his extensive and very diverse musical career with me. Thank you so much for listening. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel and Instagram, Neurons to Nirvana Podcast. Also follow me on Twitter, which is End to End Podcast, to keep up to date with all of my latest and upcoming content, as well as my random thoughts, trivia, and topics of interest. Until next time, this is Neurons to Nirvana.